Haggai chapter 1 is a really clear chapter. Uh, Our difficulty this morning is to not complicate things. It's really very simple. It is wrong for God to come second. His rightful place is first. Number one, in our hearts and in our minds and in our souls, God is to be supreme. That's Haggai 1 in a nutshell. And I have to admit that this has been a really hard talk for me to write. Because who am I to stand up here and tell you to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind when I don't? I'm very aware of my own shortcomings in this area. In a very real sense, it just feels wrong for me to preach on this chapter. But look, here we are. I was given Haggai. Uh, So come with me, won't you? And we'll listen humbly to our God as he speaks to us. He's got some strong words of rebuke for those like me who need to hear it. He's got warm words of comfort as well. But before we hook in, it's going to be helpful to see where we're up to in the Bible's history. Uh, We're in the Old Testament, and uh, so God's got his Old Testament people, the Israelites. At the time of Haggai, they'd been split into two nations, with one half already having been destroyed. Uh, The remaining half, called Judah, uh, she's been terribly sinful. Uh, The people had ignored God, they disobeyed him, they'd worshipped other gods, and so God sent the Babylonians to come and crush them, and crush them they did. Destroyed their cities, trashed God's holy temple, took most of the survivors off to Babylon as prisoners of war. It was truly awful. But God promised that after 70 years in exile, God would save Judah out of Babylon. And so when 70 years had passed, God began to bring his people back to their land. And it was meant to be the homecoming of all homecomings. God was going to bless his people in ways that they hadn't seen before. His temple would be the centrepiece of the entire world. But when the first lot of Jews came back, Jerusalem, their capital city, it still lay in ruins. The temple, God's house, was a junkyard. And so the people, when they got back, they began work to restore things, to try and get things back to how they're meant to be. They started to rebuild God's temple. They at least got part of the foundation down, but it was all too hard. And so they gave up and just went about looking after themselves and building their own houses. About 18 years later, a second lot of Jews came back from Babylon back to Jerusalem. And it's at this time, 18 years later, that Haggai starts receiving words from the Lord. But initially what God's got to say isn't pretty. God rebukes his people for having the wrong attitude to him. They're ignoring him. They're sidelining him. They're happy just to look after themselves without much thought for God. But God makes it clear this is so terribly wrong. And it all revolved around their attention to the wrong house. Come and have a look at me with Haggai chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, The word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest. This is what the Lord Almighty says. These people say, the time has not yet come for the Lord's house to be built. Then the word of the Lord came through the prophet Haggai. Is it a time for you yourselves to be living in your panelled houses while this house remains a ruin? 
God's complaint against his people is pretty clear. Uh, They're fine with building their own houses, but as for building God's house, they're not giving him any attention, and God's angry. Now, we don't have the physical temple anymore, and we don't have any need for it. And so the Jews not rebuilding the temple back then, it might not seem that much of a deal to us here, but back then, this was big. Because the temple was where God lived with his people. The temple was where God ruled his people. The temple was like God's throne. It was God's palace. Out of all the nations on the earth, at this time in history, God had chosen to live with the Jews, to rule among them from his temple in his house. And so to neglect the temple was to neglect God. To ignore the temple was to ignore God. How you treated the temple was a direct reflection of how you were treating God himself. My pop gave me his World War II Navigator's Watch on my 18th birthday. Out of all his grandchildren, he gave it to me. (laughs) It really was very special. I can't imagine doing this, but what if on the day that my pop gave me his watch, I turned around and said, yeah, good on you, pop, and just tossed the watch in the bin. Now, that would be a huge slap in the face. And as I said, I can't imagine even thinking of doing that. To disrespect Pop's watch, that would be to disrespect Pop. To disrespect God's house is to disrespect God. And the Jews of Haggai's day, they were doing just that. They were happily distracted. They were content to leave God's house a shack. While they were busy building their own places. And God was not happy. And you could tell because he had come in judgment against his people. Have a look at verse 5. Now, this is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. You've planted much, but harvested little. You eat, but never have enough. You drink, but never have your fill. You put on clothes, but are not warm. You earn wages, only to put them in a purse with holes in it. This is what the Lord Almighty says. Give careful thought to your ways. Go up into the mountains and bring down timber and build the house so that I may take pleasure in it and be honoured, says the Lord. You expected much, but see, it turned out to be little. What you brought home, I blew away. Why, declares the Lord Almighty? Because of my house, which remains a ruin while each of you is busy with his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew and the earth its crops. I called for a drought on the fields and the mountains, on the grain, the new wine, the oil, and whatever the ground produces on men and cattle and on the labour of your hands. God has brought upon his people disasters, poor harvest, cold, hunger, drought. Way back in Deuteronomy 28, these are the very judgments God said he would bring against his people if they ignored him and disobeyed him. The Jews of Haggai's day suffering in this way, it was a clear marker. They were spurning the Lord Almighty. And here in Haggai, God spells it out for them in black and white. Why are they suffering like this? Second half of verse 9, why, declares the Lord Almighty, because of my house, which remains a ruin. Well, each of you is busy with his own house. Clearly, God's got to be in his bonnet here. But why? Why is God so hung up about people giving him the cold shoulder? Why does he have to be so thingy about being neglected? It's because of who he is. 
his very nature. Because he's not the ice cream man. So it's, you know, with the ice cream man, it's okay if you don't go to him. He's not Santa Claus. There is some kind being to please you in every way and give you what you want and revolve everything around you. No, he's God. We're not. Everything is to revolve around him. He is the maker of all things, the ruler of all things. He's the one who holds your very life in the palm of his hands. He's the one to whom we must all give an account to try and throw God off his throne and live as if we're the most important thing in our lives. That's like a three-year-old child demanding that they're now in charge of the family. Can you imagine the trouble that would bring? A three-year-old taking over from their parents. Really? That's wrong. Us taking over from the Lord Almighty? Really? It's wrong. But it's not just that God's in charge. It's also what God has done for his people. For centuries, God had cared for the Israelites. He brought them out of Egypt. He brought them into the land of milk and honey. He had delivered his people for centuries from their enemies, delivered them over and over again, like a shepherd caring for his sheep. But what God did for Israel back then, it's piddly to what he's done for us. God's literally spilt blood for us. God couldn't have gone any further out of his way to love us than what he has done for us in Christ. Hung on a cross to pay for our sins. He's gone to death for our sake. So he's our maker and our ruler. He deserves everything from us. He has an incredible love saved us. Who else would we want to live for? But back to Haggai. And the people had foolishly allowed themselves to be happily distracted from God. Content to neglect him. Quietly living their life without paying him any attention. But it's wrong. It is wrong. And so God judged them. But God wanted it to end. Look again at verse 5. Verse 5, God says, Give careful thought to your ways. Or again, look at verse 7. Verse 7, this is what the Lord Almighty says, Give careful thought to your ways. See, God wants them to realize their mistake. Just think about it, Judah. Give careful thought. Life's hard and a struggle because you've turned away from me, so come back. Love me. Honor me. Build my house. Because the way you treat God's temple is a direct reflection of the way you're treating God. And it is exactly the same today. Not that there's a physical building we're meant to be constructing, But in John chapter 2, Jesus says that he is the new temple. So now it's the way that we treat Jesus that shows how we're treating God. Which isn't very surprising given that Jesus is God himself. So look, I have to ask you and me, honestly, how are you going at honouring and respecting Jesus Christ? Is he number one? absolutely supreme or are you happily distracted from him, content to neglect him? 
Are you loving him with all of your heart and soul and mind? Does it trouble you when you ignore him or disobey him? Can it feel okay to quietly go about your week as if Christ's not there and then just come here on a Sunday and pay him some lip service? How much of a say does the Lord Jesus actually get in the decisions you make and in the priorities that you have? Is your life just a vague sense of doing the Christian thing or do you intentionally and deliberately orientate your entire life around Jesus Christ? Give careful thought to your ways. And friends, the same sorts of things can be said about our attitude to our church family. In places like Ephesians 2 and in 1 Peter 2, church is described as God's temple. So the way we treat our church family reflects the way that we're treating God. The way we treat church is something that the Lord Jesus takes very personally. Can you remember the book of Acts? And you have that guy called Saul traveling around the countryside, imprisoning Christians. He is trying to destroy the church. He is arranging the deaths of Christians all over the place. But then the Lord Jesus himself appears to Saul on the road to Damascus. Christ speaks to the killer of Christians and says, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? See, the way you're treating Christ's people, it's the way you're treating Christ. So again, honestly, if the Lord Jesus sat down in your living room for lunch and he asked you about how you're going with building up his beloved people, would that be an awkward conversation to have with the Lord of the universe? Because the way you treat Christ's people, it's a direct reflection of how you're treating him. Give careful thought to your ways. But look, there's plenty more indicators we could go to for how we're treating the Lord Jesus, aren't there? Uh, If you're a parent or a grandparent, uh, what is it that you're striving for for your kids? Uh, What are your dreams for your children? That they'd be well-rounded, successful, financially secure, happy? Do you ferry them all over town all week to see that they get the most opportunities, but when it comes to sowing deeply and richly into their lives with the word of God and the love of Jesus, that's one of the first things to get dropped. Not the sport. Not the music. Or if you're young and it feels like your whole life is ahead of you, what do you planning on or dreaming for for your future what dominates your thinking honestly what's your life about right now making more money deciding on an overseas holiday scrounging around for that deposit for your first house honestly right now what direction is your life heading in is it one where the lord jesus dominates your every thought or is it one where really you're just trying to make the most out of your life for yourself Or if you're at school, who are you trying to please? In the classroom, in the playground. Do you find yourself trying to please your friends or trying to please Christ? Are you trying to fit in or are you trying to live in the fear of the Lord? Give careful thought to your ways. Because it is wrong when we try and ignore the Lord Almighty. Friends, if we know this is true for us in any sense, we need to repent. 
I need to repent. Do you? There's the strong word of rebuke from our God this morning. His place is number one and don't mess with him. And if you're sitting there or standing here feeling the weight of this and but you're burdened by it because you've been here before. You struggled with this many times. I want to repent, but it just seems like I can't. I try, but... Brothers and sisters in Christ, come with me to verse 12. Because the problem of a stubborn heart is a problem that God loves to fix. So come and have a look at what he did for the people of Haggai's day. After demanding that the Jews should be rebuilding uh, building God's house, verse 12, Then Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the whole remnant of the people obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the message of the prophet Haggai because the Lord their God had sent him and the people feared the Lord. What changed the hearts of the Jews of Haggai's day? Why did they obey the message of the prophet Haggai? We're told it was because the Lord their God sent him. God was doing a work in the people. It's even clearer as we keep reading. Verse 13. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. God is with them. He's speaking to them. He's moving among them. And what is he doing? Verse 14. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of the whole remnant of the people. It was God who stirred their their hearts. God, the one that changed them in their spirits, in their very selves. It was God who did it. And so their apathy melted. Their neglect turned to attention. God stirred them up. The whole people. And so, the end of verse 14, they came and began to work on the house of the Lord Almighty their God on the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of King Darius. That's an extraordinary verse. You've got a people here who for nearly two decades had done virtually nothing about the ruined temple and now all of a sudden they work? Why? Because God stirred them up. Because God changed their hearts. Can you hear the hope and the comfort in this? God is the one who stirs his people up to love him and to honour him. In all of our tears and in all of our frustrations and in all of our disappointments in ourselves as we try and get our lives in order and live for God in every way, but we keep falling way short, could it be that perhaps the issue is we're trying to change our hearts on our own when we can't? But God can. And God does. I've got a heap of things in my life I can't do on my own. A few years ago, we paved the back undercover area at our house. That was definitely a job for me to pay someone to do. Uh, This week, the car's getting serviced. Uh, I wouldn't even know where to start. I'm not sure I could change the oil on my lawnmower. Now, you might not be as desperate as me, but we've all got things in our lives we can't do on our own. And on our own, none of us can change our hearts. But God's reassuring word today 
is that he does change our hearts. So if you're sick of being lukewarm towards God and towards his son, if you're sick of that, whatever you do, don't try and muster up enough willpower on your own so that you'll finally become the super Christian you've always wanted to be. No, don't do that. Simply come to God's powerful word. Hear him speak in the scriptures. Give careful thought to your ways and ask God to stir up your spirit. Ask him to change your desires. As you repent, ask him to help you to repent. Ask him to stir your soul, to move you in your very self, that by the power of God, you would love him with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your mind, and with all of your strength. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your incredible love for weak, fragile sinners like us, like me. Father, thank you for your son and his death and the forgiveness and the assurance that comes in him. And Father, we pray you would forgive us for our lukewarmness. And Father, we pray that you would stir us up that you would change our hearts so that by your strength and by your power we would love you with everything we have. And we ask it that we might bring you honour. In Jesus' name, please, Father. Amen.